0: Before we uh, jump into our story today, I'd like to take some time and pray, as we always do. And just a reminder, uh, inside of our bulletin are not all the prayer requests, but many of the prayer requests. And don't forget to be praying for each other throughout the week. I know I thoroughly enjoy it when you're praying for me and you let me know. And We look at all the things that God has done the last several years and it just reminds us. So let's, uh, let's take some time together. Father, we have many things to lift up to you. Uh, The whole list, we're not going to pray for them all today, but we offer them up to you, Lord, uh, with sincerity and grateful that you are a God that we can trust and that we can come to. Lord, thank you for all of the many ways you've worked in our fellowship and uh, the people that you have impacted, the, the ones who have struggled with cancer and you've healed. Father, we lift up those who remain sick In our group and we have several Uh, Father we pray that You would just be mindful of them Some of them are wrestling with very very uh, Deep things, very serious things like cancer And other ones have surgeries Coming up and God we just pray That you would continue to be Engaged with us every step of the way And Father we lift up Bruce Miles In particular, a faithful man Lord and um, As he continues to struggle with cancer He and his family watch over them For those uh, here at our church that know him, Lord, uh, put him on their hearts to continue to pray. Father, we um, lift up, Lord, our marriages in our church. Uh, Some of them are going very well. Others are struggling, not sure where to go. And uh, we really desire to be people where our marriages are fulfilling and they bring us joy and they reflect you well. So I pray that you would be with our marriages, those that are strong, strengthen them, those that are weak, Lord, um, give them wisdom, give them grace, give them mercy, help them along the way. And Father, we have a VBS coming up. Lord, uh, even now, uh, I think it's coming in about four weeks, and even now, uh, families around the county are registering and their children are excited. We pray for those families, Lord, whose children are coming who don't know you and don't go to church anywhere. And uh, we know that there's a whole bucket of them coming. Pretty soon this place is gonna be packed with kids. Father, I pray that your grace would be abundant and overflow. Watch out for our staff, Lord, as they're heading into these final weeks of preparation. I know that they will tire. So give them strength to continue, um, continue to do the good things that will bring fruit for our church. And Father, we do lift up our teenagers. Uh, I think of the struggles and the, the trials going on at the middle school and some in the past at the high school. Father, I um, it just seems that our children are growing up in a world that's a little different than what I grew up in. And more than ever before, they need to know of your goodness. They need to know of your strength. They need to know, Lord, of your wisdom and uh, your sovereignty. Father, I pray that you would continue to teach our teens and the uh, teens in the two schools. And, and Father, I pray uh, for the middle school in particular. They've had a rough two or three weeks. and I pray that you would uh, let this week be peaceful for them. And uh, guide the administration and the teachers as they, as they love on these kids and try to, try to give them a sense of purpose, give them wisdom as well, and bless them. And now, Lord, as we turn to uh, your, uh, your word, and we begin to look at a story that is unusual for us, give us insight. You've told us that your Spirit loves to bring clarity and uh, wisdom to us, and so we pray for that. That He would be very engaged as we walk through this story. Thank you, Lord. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay, how many of you have heard of King Ahab? Raise your hands, let me see. In case you're wondering, he was married to Jezebel, that evil woman. So let me see your hands again. Okay, most of you, perfect. How many of you have heard of Ben-Hadad? Aha, two. Mark doesn't count. (laughs) He's in seminary. I'm going to read a story which I suspect most of you have not read, and if you had, you probably forgot about it. It It's out of 1 Kings chapter 20, and this is our text for today. Now, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mustered his entire army. Accompanied by 32 kings with their horses and chariots, he went up and besieged Samaria and attacked it. He sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, saying, This is what Ben-Hadad says. Your silver and your gold are mine, and the best of your wives and children are mine. The king of Israel answered, Just as you have said, my lord the king, all I have are yours. So the messenger came again and said, This is what Ben-Hadad says. I sent to demand your silver and gold, your wives and your children. But now about this time tomorrow, I'm going to send my officials to search your palace and the houses of your officials. They will seize everything you value and carry it away. Ooh, just crossed the line. The wives and the kids are okay. The gold's okay, but not the kingdom. The king of Israel summoned all the elders of the land and said to them, See how this man is looking for trouble? When he sent for my wives and my children, my silver and my gold, I didn't refuse him. So the elders and the people all answered, Don't listen to him or agree to his demands. So he replied to Ben-Hadad's messengers, Tell my lord the king, your servant will do all you demanded the first time, You can have my wives, my children, and my gold. But this demand I cannot meet. They left and took the answer back to Ben-Hadad. Then Ben-Hadad sent another message to Ahab. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. The king of Israel answered him, Tell him, one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. I love that. Two guys kind of... Belly bumping here. Ben Hadad heard this message while he and the kings were drinking and getting drunk in their tents. And he ordered them, enough, everybody up, we're going to attack the city. My beer, and it, and it. <laughs> Mark and I have a lot of fun during the week on these stories. We share with each other what we're going to do. When I read this story to Mark, said, Mark said, it sounds like a country western song. You're going to have my gun, you're going to have my, my women, but you can't have my pickup truck. <laughs> That's what's going on here. It's a fascinating story. Before I explain it to you, I'm going to go back a couple of chapters, chapter 16, and I want you to hear how Ahab is introduced. This is very important to the story. First Kings 16, verse 29. In the 38th year, Asa, king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom. The kingdoms had divided by now. So you have the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, in the 38th year of Asa, who's the king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. So he's the king in the northern kingdom. He reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. He was a very evil king. But he also married Jezebel, the daughter of Etbaah, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. He's not worshiping God at all. Ahab also made an Asherah pole, that's a poll in honor to the goddess Asherah, one of the Canaanite gods. He did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So this is an evil king. This is an evil king. We're in the middle of a series called Trouble Brewing. We uh, took the name from the uh, Far Side comics, where you have two things that are uh, in opposition to one another, and they don't seem to fit together. We're looking at several passages. Some of them are not very well known to you, but some of them are. But in these passages, something is happening and the story begins to unfold. And then with the word meanwhile, we find out there's another story underneath it. And what we learn from these stories is that God is always at work under the surface, brewing the solution. Yes, pun intended, brewing the solution. And it's often different than what we think. So in the story here, we just learned that Ahab is very evil and he's about to uh, be taken over by Aram in the north. You see, uh, Aram is attempting to occupy and gain Samaria. Ahab is facing this northern coalition with these 32 kings. But he's also very aware that there's a growing power to the east known as Assyria. And it won't be very long before Assyria becomes a world-dominating uh, empire as part of the world. And they're eventually going to come in and destroy the northern kingdom. He has his hands full, in other words. He's got all these kings out there plotting to take his land, his uh, palaces and all that. This is a crucial period in the history of the northern kingdom. And this is one of Ahab's last tests to see if he would submit to the Lord. So it's one of the last tests in this story. War is formally declared with the solemn oath taken in the names of the gods of Aram. Verse 10, Ben-Hadad said, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. Now, this is a formal declaration of war in the ancient world. Uh, We have a lot of discussion in the literature about what constitutes a holy war. Honestly, every war in the ancient world was considered a holy war because it was a statement of how powerful our gods were. If our gods are more powerful than yours, we're going to win, you're going to lose. That's kind of how they decided and how they thought about it. But furthermore, he's... Uh, Aram, uh, Ben-Hadad, is talking about total annihilation of Samaria. If enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men even a handful, that's total destruction. And he's saying, I have the army to do it, and I have the gods to back me up. You're in trouble. Total annihilation. So just at this part of the story, we learn several things. We learn much about the cultural values of the day, and we learn something about men. Uh, some things don't ever change, do they? We boast and we uh, we do we we goad each other into action. We do all of that, but the cultural values. I'll give up my wives and children. We can't even conceive of that, can we? That's how little value they had in this part of the world. Largely considered property. I can replace them. You can have them. Just don't take my kingdom. It's amazing. It's amazing. We also learned about Ahab's character. Never once in the story has he asked God for help or direction or anything like that. Then verse 13, meanwhile, here's another story beginning to emerge underneath this one. Meanwhile, a prophet, uh, verse 13, a prophet uh, came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, this is what the Lord says, do you see this vast army I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this, asked Ahab. The prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The junior officers under the provincial commanders will do it. Not even your senior leadership. We're going to route this army with the junior guys. So Ahab asked, well, who will start the battle? And uh, this prophet says, you will. So God sends a prophet to Ahab. And he's going to act, and the reason he's going to act is in verse uh, 13. I will give this army into your hand today so that you will know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, capitals L-O-R-D, the one true living God, so that you will know that I am the one true living God. Quit worshiping Baal. So that's his reason. He's continuing to give Ahab opportunities to serve and to know this true God who is his covenant God the God who is is there to protect him and to watch over him so they engage in battle and they rout the Arameans verse 15 so Ahab summoned the 32 junior officers under the provincial commanders then he assembled the rest of the Israelites 7,000 in all they set out at noon while Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings allied with him were in their tents getting drunk wow the junior they they didn't expect Ahab to come after him they're the bigger army they're just having fun, partying, and waiting until it's their time. The junior officers under the provincial commanders went out first. Now, Ben-Hadad had dispatched scouts who came back and reported, men are coming at us from Samaria. So he said, well, if they've come out for peace, take them alive. If they've come out for war, take them alive. We need slaves. Take them alive. He's not worried in the slightest. The junior officers under the provincial commanders marched out of the city with the army behind them. And each one of them struck down his opponent. At that, the Arameans fled with the Israelites in pursuit. But Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of his horsemen. The king of Israel advanced, overpowered the horses and chariots, and inflicted heavy losses on the Arameans. This is not the end of the story. It gets better. So God sends a prophet back to warn Ahab, verse 22. Afterward, the prophet came to the king of Israel, this is Ahab, and said, strengthen your position and see what must be done because next spring the king of Aram is going to attack you again. So he has time to regroup. He's been defeated. So Ben-Hadad, being the wise king that he is, he gathers his advices and says, what just happened? Who got the biggest army on the planet, I think? He thought so. And they just routed us. So verse 23 Meanwhile, the officials of the king Aram advised him, their gods are gods of the hills. Of course, that makes perfect sense. We're fighting them in the wrong place. That's why they're too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains where our gods are stronger, surely we will beat them. Do this. Remove all the kings from their commands and replace them with other officers. Wipe out your whole leadership. Those of you that are retired military, I wonder if that's a good plan. To wipe out your senior leadership. You must also raise an army like the one you lost. Horses for horses, chariots for chariots, so we can fight them on the plains. Then surely we will be stronger than they. So he agreed with them and, they a- and acted accordingly. Now with this part of the story, the story begins to shift. You see in the early part of the story, they weren't concerned, were they? They knew they had a bigger army and their gods would protect them. They're going after the loot. They're going after the total destruction of Samaria, but all of a sudden, now this is a battle about the gods. So there's been a shift from a desire to take the capital in Samaria and all of its riches to a fight against Israel's gods. This has turned into a true holy war at this point. So the Arameans need to learn that the true God, who we serve, by the way, exists everywhere and that He is sovereign over all. They have to learn this. So they engage in another battle. Verse 26. So the next spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and they went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. When the Israelites were also mustered and given provisions, they marched out to meet them. The Israelites camped opposite them, now listen to the metaphors, like two small flocks of goats while the Arameans covered the entire countryside. So the man of God uh, came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Because... The the Arameans think that the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys. I will deliver this vast army into your hands so that you will know that I am the Lord. This is why he's doing it. For seven days they camped opposite each other. And on the seventh day, the battle was joined. Here they go. They go for it. The Israelites inflicted 100,000 casualties on the Aramean foot soldiers in one day. The rest of them escaped to the city of Aphek, where the wall collapsed on 27,000 of them. Ben-Hadad fled to the city and hid in an inner room. It's not going very well for Ben-Hadad. The real reason for God's blessing Ahab is to reveal his glory to another nation and to undermine their faith in their gods, while at the same time he's teaching Ahab he is the true God. Quit worshiping Baal. Baal has done nothing for you. So Ben-Hadad, being the wise man that he is, again advises, he brings his advisors together and said, what just happened? This is the second time they routed us. And here's their answer, I love it. His officials said to him, look, we have heard that the kings of Israel are merciful. He's got no army left. They've all been killed. There's very little left to fight with here we've heard that the kings of israel are merciful let us go to the king of israel with sackcloth around our waists, ropes around our heads perhaps you he will spare he will spare your life so wearing sackcloth around their waists and ropes around their heads they went to the king of israel and said by the way the ropes around their head communicates i'm now your prisoner you know you can leave me wherever you want and they said your servant ben hadad says please let me live so the king answered is he still alive he's my brother he's my peer Then the men took this as a good sign, and they were quick to pick up his word. Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad, they said. Go get him, the king said. So when Ben-Hadad came out, Ahab had him climb up with him into his chariot. He's treating him with equality, with deference. I will return the cities my father took from your father, Ben-Hadad offered. You may set up your own market areas in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. So I'll give you back all the stuff that we stole if you let me live. You know? Watching out for himself. I love it. Ahab said, On the basis of this treaty, I will set you free. So he made a treaty with him and let him go. Wow. Very different world than ours, isn't it? In some respects. Some fascinating things here. His officials said, We have heard that the kings of Israel are merciful. The word here is uh, one of my favorite Hebrew terms of all time, chesed. It's a technical word that refers to the loving kindness of God, the chesed of God, the loving kindness, the loyalty of God. It's that motivation, that part of God's character that makes him fulfill his covenant. It's the chesed of God that makes him never forget his promise to us to always come back for us. Um, It's a word used all throughout the Old Testament And it's a word that describes This incredibly rich Loving merciful God And they said we have heard That the kings of Israel Demonstrate chesed They knew They knew of God's covenantal love And the uh, Arameans Had heard of it And so they believe that the kings of Israel Are going to demonstrate that same Level of commitment that God does So Ahab relents toward Ben-Hadad, grants him freedom in exchange for returning the cities that he had taken. Now Ahab continues to demonstrate either an unawareness or a disregard for God's desires. By now he should know who his God is. Unfortunately, he continues to act in very selfish ways at very great costs. Listen to the last part of the story. Um, Chapter 20, verse 35. By the word of the Lord, one of the company of the prophets said to his companions, Strike me with your weapon, but he refused. So the prophet pronounces judgment. Verse 37 The prophet found another man and said, Strike me, please. So the man struck him and wounded him. Then the prophet went and stood by the road waiting for the king. He disguised himself with his headband down over his eyes. This is an acted parable. Jesus told parables. This is one that's acted out, very similarly to what Nathan did with David. He's acting out a parable to get the king's, King Ahab's attention. As the king passed by, the prophet called to him, Your servant went into the thick of the battle, and someone came to me with a captive and said, Guard this man. If he is missing, it will cost you your life or his life, or you must pay a talent of silver. That's a lot of money, by the way. While your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. Okay, now in the ancient world, the rules were pretty simple in this regard. If you were assigned responsibility for a criminal or a prisoner, it's your responsibility. If they escape, they take your life. Somebody's going to pay. That's the story, that's the uh, cultural value that's behind the story of the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. You see, the Philippian jailer is in his home, and he has all the prisoners secured nice and tight in the, in the uh, prison, and the prison would have been a cave that would have gone back into where it's very dark and dangling, uh, dang- I uh, 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 forgot the word, moist and damp and all that kind of stuff. And so he's there, yeah, thank you, and, um, and there's an earthquake. He runs out and sees the prison gates have fallen off. Okay, now, what do prisoners do when there's no guard around and the gates are open? They're gone. So it doesn't matter anymore. His life is over. So he takes his sword and gets ready to kill himself. And Paul yells out from the darkness No, 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 no. We're all here. We're all here. Don't take your life. Now, he has never seen that before. Here's a glimpse of how the people of God are different than the world. Right here. They could have escaped. They could have said, ah, the Lord has set us free, but they didn't. They didn't. Don't take your life. We are all here. He comes in with a light, a lamp, trembling, falls down and says, "Uh, I don't even know who your God is. What do I need to do to be saved? And he says, believe in Jesus. His whole household converted. Voila, we have the church of Philippi begins to grow right there. And so that's the same cultural value as what's happening right here. So if you, if you lose this man, then it's your life for his life. So the king says, well, that's your sentence, King Ahab. You have pronounced it yourself. So the prophet quickly removes the headband from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. So he said to the king, this is what the Lord says. You have set free a man I have determined should die. You have set free a man I have determined should die. Therefore, it's your life for his life and listen to this your people for his people the northern kingdom has just been handed a death sentence and that's what happens very soon because of his unfaithfulness sullen and angry the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria (laughs) I love it doesn't repent he sulks and stalks away Never demonstrating a desire to repent, follow God's ways. No no point in here has he asked God for his leadership, his direction. His leadership was disastrous for the northern kingdom. This story is near the end of the northern kingdom. It shows the kingdom's consistent refusal to obey the Lord as captured by their king, and it's almost over. Okay, what do we do with this story? It's a pretty amazing story, isn't it? How many of you remember reading this story or ever hearing it preached on? It's a great story, isn't it? Ahab chose reasonable actions, didn't he? From our perspective. In fact, when you look at the literature outside the Bible, uh, there's a lot of literature to discuss Ahab. He was a very good king. He brought order. He solidified the northern kingdom, brought prosperity to it. He was a good administrator, put the army together. Um, From every way you can measure, he was successful. He was a good man but we learn through God's word what's going on under the surface. And the under the surface is a very evil man. What he did was reasonable, however, it was not obedient. You understand the difference? It was reasonable, but it wasn't obedient. The story reveals the truth about Ahab's character. He consistently acted in his own best interests rather than the interests of God. So this raises several questions that we need to wrestle with. I'm going to leave you with these questions. What does it mean for God to be God? What does it mean? You see, God can use anything that he created, which is everything fulfill his mission. He can use angels, he can use demons, he can use Satan, he can use Christians, he can use non-Christians, he can use earthquakes, he can use floods, he can use whatever he wants because he created all of it to accomplish his mission that all of creation would know and worship him alone as God. God gets to be God. We don't get to be God. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? Because we think with our distorted, depraved sense of justice, we know what's right and what's wrong. And we don't. The Bible is full of these stories where what we think is reasonable is not reasonable. In God's eyes. Reasonable is not the same as obedient. In other words, God, who, uh, who is God and does he have the right to rule over our lives even if we disagree with him? Mark talked last week about the, the, the church, and it's part of God's blessing. It is a unique group of people in the world. You see, we're surrounded by people that can't help us. Our spouses, they can help us, and our family, but they lose their objectivity because they're so close. They have so much skin in the game. I know Nancy better than anybody else in the world knows her, but I'm not objective with her. I have my own sinfulness around her. And if I turn to the world, uh, we're on different planets when it comes to values and worldviews. Ephesians says, Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We've been made alive together with Christ when he saved us. So when you ask a non-believer for wisdom, here's what it's like. You walk up to one of the funeral homes and you say, I'd like to talk to one of your dead bodies. You want to what? I would like some time alone with one of your dead bodies. So you go back in the back, open up a casket, and there's a corpse there, and you say, "Hey buddy, I'm having trouble with my marriage. What do you think I should do?" We were dead. Do you believe that? In our trespasses and sins. We were made alive when we turned to Christ. When you ask a non-believer for wisdom, it's the same as asking a corpse. They have not been brought to life. So we have the world out there with a very different value set than we have, incapable of giving us wisdom at a core level, and then we have families which are awful close. That leaves us right here. And what do we have right here in our group? We have people that have a shared value, a shared worldview, a shared faith in God with enough objectivity that we can help each other. And so when you say to your friend, why did you you do that? You just did what the prophet did to Ahab. Why did you do that? That's the best question you can get asked. So the church is God's grace. People say all the time up here in our county, I can find God out in the mountains. Maybe. But you're not going to find what you need to transform and grow in the Lord. That takes place right here in the relationships right here. Why did you do that? What were you thinking? So when I've had people come to me, I'm going to get a divorce. Okay, tell me your thoughts. Why are you doing that? And as they begin to explain it, we begin to work through what that might mean and if they really want to pay that price. That's just an example of the role we play in each other's lives. You see, when you look at what we learn from this story is that God is God, but we learn something else. Just because you're experiencing success, success does not mean that you're demonstrating obedience Just because you're experiencing success success does not mean that you're experiencing God's blessing. Don't be fooled. By the same token, just because you're experiencing failure, do not assume you're being punished. I've told the elders many times, if I have a choice between two elders, one has been successful in business but has never learned the ways of the Lord and one's gone through bankruptcy and they're humbled and they've learned faith, I'll take that one every day. You see, the story of Solomon teaches us that. Arguably the worst king in Israel's history, he's the one that planted the seeds for King Ahab to do what he did. Failed miserably in every area, and yet he wrote the best wisdom literature the world has ever seen. Because at the end of life, he realized the tragedies of his life. So blessing does not equal success, and failure does not equal punishment. Reasonable success is not the same as obedience. So are there consequences for putting our own comfort and glory first rather than obeying God? Yeah, there are. So here's the question I want to leave you with. In what ways do you choose to put your own comfort and glory first before God's will? What ways do you do that? Every one of you does it. I do it. What does that look like? Father, thank you for uh, for giving us these stories, that stories that reveal so much about your thoughts and help us to understand the world around us in our own lives, in our own successes and our own failures. Lord, help us as a church to really understand what it means to. To walk, uh, understand more than we already do what it means to walk by faith, not by sight. To walk by your standards, not by the world's standards. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to